I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Over the years, I've done countless episodes on reproductive justice and abortion. And given what I've learned through those episodes about the ways in which bodily autonomy and access to abortion has been on the decline over the past several decades, really, it really is no surprise that we've found ourselves in this position. And by this position, I mean on the verge of seeing Roe v. Wade formally overturned by the Supreme Court. But even with Roe v. Wade fully intact, getting an abortion in this country has been increasingly difficult, especially getting a late-term abortion. So today's guest is Kate Deneen. And Kate joins me to talk about her own late-term abortion and all the hoops she had to jump through, the expense and the traveling, and of course, the heartbreak of the entire experience. And one of the most surprising things about Kate's experience is that she lives in a very blue city. I mean, no one should have to go through what Kate went through to simply access abortion as healthcare. And it's really a story that you have to hear to believe. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kate Deneen. Kate Deneen, welcome. Thank you so much, Jen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for joining me. Thank you for, you know, being willing to, to share your story. Of course. So this happened back in the summer of 2021, right? Like last summer, I believe. Correct. Last July. Last July. And you were pregnant. And mm-hmm. at 33 weeks, you went to have a fetal MRI, which isn't a typical procedure, I don't think. It, you, typically, you have a, an ultrasound. I have two kids. And I have an ultrasound. But I've never had a fetal MRI. Why did that happen? Why did you have one? And what did they discover? Uh, right. Yeah. So it's it's atypical. And it was you know my first experience with a fetal MRI. So as you said, I was about... 33 weeks along, um, I had had uh, an uneventful pregnancy up until then, my second, and I was experiencing some abdominal pain, like mild abdominal pain. And I'm like, oh, you know, might as well go in and, and get it checked out. Better safe than sorry. Like, let me just call my OB's office. So I called and they said, okay, like, I'm sure it's nothing, but let's just bring you in to have an ultrasound. And so they gave me a full growth scan. You know, I had a um, an anatomy scan around 20 weeks and it was perfect. In fact, the doctor said to me, you know, how does perfect sound? Um, I was like, that sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, so then I had, um, you know, one of those long ultrasounds, you know, where they're measuring everything. And, um, you know, there's a point in the ultrasound where you could kind of tell that the technician was like spending a lot of time on the baby's brain. Like, you know, kind of checking and rechecking and measuring. So I started to get nervous and the doctor came in and explained that uh, one of my son's ventricles and his brain was measuring a little wide. So it was like kind of like an enlarged ventricle, but you know, this isn't uncommon. It's probably nothing, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of on the milder end of, 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 of enlargement, but you know, why don't, why don't you get a fetal MRI just to check it out? So that was on that was last June 29th when I had that ultrasound. And then I was rushed in for a fetal MRI on July 2nd. Um, and so, you know, if, if you had an MRI, it's like not a, not a pleasant experience, even, yeah. even more so when you're, when you're quite pregnant. So, you know, the, the, the objective of that MRI was to take a, a closer look at the baby's brain because you can only see so much on ultrasound. So um, it was during that MRI that they detected that um, my son had suffered a catastrophic stroke in utero. So it, it's described as a, a grade four hemorrhagic stroke. And it was, you know, completely out of the blue for us um, uh, to get that news. Well, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm very, very, very sorry that, that oh, this whole thing happened to you. And that's why, you know, at the beginning, I said, thank you for sharing your story. And I was thinking when I was saying that, 
you know, you're sharing your story because often women go through this. It isn't common, but they go through this. But also you're sharing it to highlight the holes in our system Mm -hmm. for medical care and for abortion care, which we'll get to later. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I, I, I appreciate you sharing it to help other women, but the latter part, you know, to help people understand the holes in our legislation that bothers me a bit because we shouldn't have to share our pain to get the care that we deserve and the care that we need. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And that's kind of like the grand irony of, of this type of storytelling, you know, it's, um, you know, people like me, there's so many people out there telling their stories right now, which I think is really powerful, but, you know, we're sacrificing our own privacy really so that other people will have privacy in the future, right? right? To make these decisions with their medical teams, with their healthcare providers. Um, and, and it's really none of anybody's business. Exactly. Right. So again, I really appreciate you sharing this. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. Th- so what was the what was the prognosis after that MRI? What did they yeah. determine? So it's so this is all during COVID too, right? So that that's right. kind of this other 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 strange element. So I went in for the M- fetal MRI. I came home and I waited for a virtual visit with a, a pediatric neurologist. So you know I'm 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 in my kitchen and I log into the virtual visit on my phone and I have a very lengthy conversation with a, a neurologist and there was also a nurse practitioner on the line and you know. The doctor was so professional and thorough at, you know, showing me the brain scans um, from the MRI versus, you know, normal brain scans to, to get to the final prognosis that, you know, I'm very sorry that your son has, has suffered a, a, a massive stroke in utero. And I was just, you know, completely shocked and blown away. And I you know, said, what, well, what does that mean? Um, and what does that mean for my son? And he said, well, there's a, a 50% chance that he'll die in utero. And then there's a 50 percent chance he'll survive, you know, with a, a whole spectrum of, 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 of health compromises basically. Right. So the way I heard that prognosis was, you know, my baby would either die or he would be consigned to a fate worse than death, you know, in terms of impairment, quality of life, pain and suffering. So once the doctor really painted that picture for me and like in, in such a, a thorough, you know, careful way, and, and I'm immensely grateful for that, the diagnostic care that I got at my hospital, um, you know, I immediately asked, okay, well, well, what are my options? You know, I'm, I'm 33 weeks along. And the nurse practitioner on the call said, well, you may still be able to explore termination if you're able to travel. So I'm like sitting there in my kitchen in Boston, you know, often regarded as both this like liberal bastion of reproductive justice, but also like the healthcare hub of the universe. And my doctors are telling me uh, that my my son has suffered this catastrophic stroke. He may very likely die. If he lives, he'll have a life, however brief of pain and suffering. But if I'm to pursue termination, which they didn't, you know, question, I have to leave the state of Massachusetts. So it was really in that moment that I was just blown away and and made aware of this massive gap in later abortion access that exists in a blue state like Massachusetts. Was it apparent immediately to you what she meant by you'll have to leave the state? You know, because yeah. immediately, like if I were there, I would think like, oh, do they not have all the equipment here? Like, yeah, right, right. Right. We just assume that, you know, anyway, I'll let you answer that question. Yeah. No, and yeah, so so my first my first question was like, wait, wait, why? Right? Like, I have always kind of prided myself as being someone who thought, you know, I've always been an advocate for choice and reproductive justice. And I had 
followed along when in 2020 here in Massachusetts, the legislature overrode a governor's veto to enact what's called the Roe Act here. And I thought, wow, this isn't that wonderful. Isn't it great to live in the state of Massachusetts? So I'm like, what? Didn't we just pass a big law? So so things like this wouldn't happen. Um, And so every doctor I spoke with at my hospital, Mass General Hospital in Boston, from that point onward, you know, I asked, why can't you give me care in at Mass General in the state of Massachusetts? And I got kind of various versions of the same answer was, you know, the state law and our hospital's policy just don't go far enough. You're too far along and your son's diagnosis like doesn't qualify. And so, and all of the, the doctors, you know, were very um, empathetic and professional and, but, you know, telegraphed to me, like our hands are tied. And so the hospital was able to get me an appointment with a clinic in DC, um, but the clinic couldn't see me until later the following week. And I was freaking out and uh, worried that I would go into premature labor. And I was able to find myself an appointment two days earlier at another clinic um, called the Care Clinic in Bethesda, Maryland. And I've you know, since learned that there are really just a handful of clinics in the entire country that provide later abortion care. Um, you know, Maryland, DC, Colorado, um, and then New Mexico, uh, depending upon how how far along you are. So to be, you know, turned away by my own hospital, to be told I have to travel very far, you know, that's a 500 mile drive to the metro DC area. And of course, to pay out of pocket for the medical procedure, you know, it was something I had the financial resources and support system to pull off, but so many people do not, you know, the logistics of it really just compounded the heartache of the, you know, my, my son's prognosis and um, the decision that we were faced with. So I'm assuming this happened over the course of what, several days or a week. This was um, like, a, this was like a day. So I got, I had the MR, I had the fetal MRI um, in the morning on July 2nd. I had a conversation with the neurologist just a couple hours later at like 11 o'clock. And it was like during that virtual visit that I knew I wanted to pursue a termination. You know, I felt like I had good information about what we were facing in terms of a prognosis and what my son's quality of life would look like. And, you know, I was able to, again, the, the hospital was able to schedule me for the following week. So like that was a Friday and the appointment was on a Wednesday. So we mobilized really quickly to get an appointment at that earlier clinic on Monday, which was a federal holiday. It was the 4th of July holiday. So it was like, everything moved very, very quickly as, as soon as um, we had the results of that MRI. And and I think it had to because of how far along I was in my pregnancy. Right. Like you said, you could go into premature labor because I think full term is what, like 38 weeks or they yeah, maybe 37, yeah. 37 yeah. weeks, right? Yeah. Exactly. So you're very, very close. So every day is, is important. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is it sounds like you made the decision fairly quickly, mm-hmm. but it sounds like they had already decided that they were not going to give you care, right? Yes. It, 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 they yes. didn't have a lot of time to deliberate. That's what I'm trying to get at. Absolutely, absolutely. And all of that was, you know, unclear to me at the time, right? So they gave me the diagnosis and told me that I, they couldn't give me care. Right. In the same conversation. So, you know, kind of uh, reverse engineering what happened, you know, after the fact. I later learned that the hospital has a panel of sorts to determine which abortions after 24 weeks can be performed in-house based on their hospital policy. So this panel convened in some capacity. They took a look at our case and they said, no, you know, we can't, we can't help you. 
and all of that happened, you know, before I had the conversation about the MRI results. Wow. So what, what is the law in Massachusetts? <laughs> Up to 24 weeks, you can have an abortion, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so the context is really interesting in Massachusetts. So, um, you know, back in 2020, the legislature here, the, the state legislature, overrode a veto from Governor Charlie Baker, who was a Republican, to enact the Roe Act, which essentially, you know, codifies access to abortion in state law. And, you know, this was obviously a really important move in light of what's happening at the federal level now. I think, you know, the legislature deserves a lot of credit in terms of having the vision to take action uh, several years ago to try and get ahead of, of what we're seeing now. So, you know, that law did a number of things um, in expanding access. It allowed for abortion after 24 weeks of pregnancy in certain cases. Um, and then it also did some important things around um, expanding access for younger, younger patients as well. So lowering the age of parental consent from 18 to 16. So it was a really important law that was really just recently passed just a couple years ago. So if you take a look at the letter of the law, you know, a lot of advocates here in Massachusetts believe that under the current state law, doctors at MGH did in fact have the discretion uh, to provide me with abortion care in-house, but uh, they believe that the hospital is very narrowly interpreting the law or very conservatively interpreting the law so that you know they don't have as much liability in, in performing ab abortions after that 24-week cutoff. Liability in the context of, of whom, right? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I'm serious. Like, who are they concerned about being liable to? Yeah. So, so it's so it's really interesting. So I've asked this question to MGH many times. You know, to 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 kind of cite a couple of provisions in the law that I think are, are are particularly compelling. So, you know, if a pregnancy has existed for 24 weeks or more, no abortion may be performed except by a physician, and only if necessary, quote, in the best medical judgment of the physician, to preserve the life of the patient, uh, to preserve the patient's physical or mental health. Or in the best medical judgment of the physician, an abortion is warranted, and this is these these words are important because of a lethal fetal anomaly, or the fetus is incompatible with sustained life outside of the uterus. So in my case, it seems as though the panel really focused on what is a lethal fetal anomaly, and you know I was essentially told that my son's diagnosis, while likely fatal, um, and certainly catastrophic you know, did not qualify as lethal given their interpretation of, of state law. I also learned, which I think is really staggering, that the hospital's current policy, that panel, doesn't contemplate in any way maternal mental health. And that to me is really, wow. uh, is really, is really staggering in terms of just ignoring an entire provision in the state law. But that's a part of the, the Roe Act, right? Like it, it is. The, the, that's what I thought. So they just yeah. ignored that yeah. that piece, yeah. that provision. So, yeah. So they're really, they're very narrowly interpreting what qualifies as, quote, a lethal fetal anomaly. And they shared that they have, you know, a, a shockingly short working list of diagnoses that they consider to be definitely lethal. Like there's no chance that your your baby would survive. And so I asked, well, what would you have needed to see on the MRI in terms of um, you know, damage, impact, um, ex, uh, you know, extent of the stroke. And they told me, well, you know, neurological issues are really difficult. Really, we would probably have needed to see something like anencephaly, where there's 
an entire part of the, the fetus's brain just completely missing. So that's how extreme you know, the hospital is interpreting what may qualify as a lethal fetal anomaly or um, sustained life outside the uterus being, you know, seconds, right? And and that's arguably not in line with the spirit of the law. That's not how advocates envision this law being implemented. So that's kind of one piece that's very specific to my case. The other piece, that maternal mental health provision, uh, I think is applicable to so many more cases. And the fact that the, the hospital is interpreting one part of the law very narrowly and completely ignoring a, a, a separate part of the law, I think, is a really a really big problem. You know, in a sense, they are aligning with conservative views about abortion, whether they're conservative themselves or not, right? And and you yes. know, what is surprising about the story is that you know I live in a blue state and a blue, very blue city, right? I would expect that a medical team, you know, a group of scientists would align with my views or with the views of the law, basically about you know what's considered you know yep. legal in this case. It's just such a blunt and cruel interpretation of statutory language. And you're right, it's aligning with anti-choice views. And it's shocking to me because I had those same <laughs> I had those same hopes, <laughs> right? Yeah. For you know, my medical team, um, who is arguably one of the most skilled, um, well-regarded medical teams in the country, one of the nation's best hospitals in one of the nation's bluest states. So to to learn of this interpretation, to learn of this policy was really shocking and disheartening and uh, you know, really confounding. You know, I'm I'm so grateful for the care that I received, you know, the diagnostic care that I received at Mass General Hospital in Boston, and of course the compassionate abortion care that I ultimately re- received in, in Maryland so far from home. Um, but it was an incredibly difficult traumatic process uh, to pull off. And again, I had the financial resources and support system to travel out of state to pay upwards of $10,000 out of pocket. So many people do just do not have that luxury. And so for this to be a hospital policy is, it's really immoral. Yeah, it is really immoral. Yeah. Is there any way to parse through that decision? I guess they don't actually give you details about the deliberative process. But like when I first read the story, I thought, you know, there's some, you know, activist leaning person on this board or, you know, they're kind of conflating their their feelings or personal feelings or ethics against the law. I guess there's no way to parse out what they were actually thinking. Based on conversations I've had, it seems as though the legal team has informed a policy that the panel has to adhere to. And the panel will only approve an abortion after 24 weeks if the fetus has one of a handful of definitively lethal fetal diagnoses. And if your case does not align with that, then they will will not provide a termination for you at Mass General Hospital. So it just seems it's almost like a a checklist, right? It's just this handful of diagnoses. And if it's beyond this, then there's really nothing we can do for you. I wonder if they've been approached before by conservative attorneys or people who represent conservative groups Mm -hmm. who aren't really happy about the Roe Act, maybe, for them to be in kind of this defensive posture. Yeah, it does seem like a defensive posture. You know, Massachusetts is an interesting state. It was a fight to pass the Roe Act, right? The legislature had to show a lot of courage and grit to override a veto from the governor. But that being said, when I asked administrators at the hospital, 
what kind of legal risk are you concerned about, right? What right. is informing this legal policy? And they said they're concerned about a third-party anti-choice organization launching a criminal suit against a physician. And I kind of paused. I'm like, how would that even happen, right? No. And I've since consulted with different lawyers. I'm not a lawyer about this, the likelihood of something like that happening. And, you know, it's been described to me as a red herring. So for the the administrators, the doctors to cite that as, as kind of their concern from a legal perspective is really confusing to me and seems like a concern that can be really easily mitigated. So tell me about the actual experience. So you said that only a few late-term abortion clinics were near you, right? Um, anywhere in the country. Yeah. Anywhere in the country. Yeah. And I, there used to be more, right? You know, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the history of how many clinics used to operate in performing, you know, all trimester care, but there certainly used to be more independent clinics operating um, across the country. And now they're really, there's literally a handful of clinics, independent clinics who are creating the safety net and providing later term care um, for people from all over the country. So, you know, my, one of my concerns um, and the questions, one of the questions that I ask myself a lot, you know, something I ruminate on a lot is if this happened again, or this happened to somebody else, would they even be able to get care at one of these clinics? Because these clinics are going to be inundated in a few months with folks who are being sent out of hostile states to get abortions at any point in pregnancy. Would I even be able to get an appointment? There is a month-long wait right now, I'm, I'm, I'm told anecdotally, at uh, the clinic in D.C. The clinic I went to in Maryland isn't accepting any later-term patients right now because they're having staffing issues, right? So like, this is a very tenuous safety net of clinics. And the fact that blue states like Massachusetts are you know, systematically denying people later abortion care and kind of foisting their patients upon this fragile, overburdened, under-resourced network of clinics is, is really confounding. And I think an abdication of responsibility on the part of hospitals here in Massachusetts. Yeah. You mentioned the cost. It was something like yeah. you know, $10,000. Yes. Um, out of pocket. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the, the process, you know, was again, things moved really quickly once we got, once we got the diagnosis. And again, I was very concerned about going into labor in part because, you know, I asked one of the physicians at Mass General, what would happen if I went into labor? And they essentially told me, you know, we would have to intervene with like life-saving measures for your child. So that seems, yeah, that seems like, you know, there's no, there's, I, I, I guess there's maybe one hospital in the country that has an infant hospice, but that's not, you know, that's not like a typical practice. The hospital would, would come in with life-saving measures kind of against the, the will of, of the parents, which I think is kind of like a separate, a separate thing um, that, that requires a bit of, a bit of uh, uh, examination. So, you know, we, we moved really quickly. I was very concerned about going into labor. I found out about this other clinic in Bethesda, Maryland, that, you know, I have friends who work in the reproductive justice movement, and they said this is a really well-regarded clinic. This doctor who runs it, Dr. Leroy Carhart, is an incredibly compassionate, um, experienced provider. In fact, his 
partner who he who he used to work with, um, Dr. George Tiller, was murdered by an anti-choice zealot while he was attending church years ago, right? Well, so like, yeah. this is someone who's just like really devoted to the cause and very courageous in, in providing care to, to patients all throughout pregnancy. So I felt like, you know, very grateful to be accessing care at, at Dr. Har- Carhart's clinic. So, you know, I was again, able to get in two days earlier, which like now doesn't seem like a big difference, but then it was just like a huge difference. Like two whole days earlier was, you know, just such a, honestly a blessing. Um, and so, you know, my husband and I drove, well, first of all, my husband and I found childcare for our then 18 month old and we took, got in our car and we drove 500 miles down to DC. And again, I, I had this appointment for a clinic in uh, DC on Wednesday, but I was hoping to get an earlier one in Bethesda and I was able to. Um, and so, you know, we, we stayed in a hotel and I had an appointment on the 5th, Monday, the 5th, which was the July 4th holiday. And I think it's like particularly poignant that Dr. Carhart's also a a veteran um, and his clinic was open on a federal holiday for Independence Day. And there he was, you know, um, opening his doors to provide abortion care. So, you know, he was incredibly empathetic and sympathetic and said something like, um, I'm so sorry to have met you, but I can give you care. And I hope that this is, you know, the worst thing that ever happens to you and your family. So we, we just felt so supported and like cocooned by his expertise. And then the procedure itself was very quick and like physically relatively painless in that my baby was given an injection to stop his heart. And, and, and that, that was it. And, um, we then drove back 500 miles to Mass General Hospital where I was induced, um, for labor and delivery. And it was a 40 hour induction. And, uh, that, you know, that was kind of the second, the second part of the process. Right. I, I'm sorry. I have so many thoughts and so yes. many questions. Um, you know, first of all, just, you know, describing that experience, it just sounds heart-wrenching, right? And, yes. and what, what makes me angry about it is the way that conservatives tried to paint women in this position as being kind of flippant. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, that's just so insulting. That's the first thing I'll say. And yes. the second thing I'll say is that, you know, Roe, that was in 2021. Yes. We did, you know, the, the Supreme Court leak hadn't happened yet. Roe was still intact, mostly, yep. I guess, right? But this does not sound like a country that considers or a state that considers abortion legal and abortion to be health care. But like right. everything you've described to me from beginning to end sounds like there's almost this kind of criminal element, you know, around it. You have to go out of mm-hmm. state, you have, you know, there are attorneys and, you know, this does not sound like abortion is health care. It does not. It does not. No, it does not sound like abortion is healthcare. I mean, throughout the whole process, like, yeah, I felt like a fugitive, you know, abandoned by my hospital and forced to go out of state to get compassionate abortion care. And this was obviously not a decision that my husband and I came to lightly. I think we're very confident in the decision that we made with the diagnostic information that we had. You know, we felt like this was the compassionate, loving choice for our son. But the logistics around, you know, pursuing that choice were just staggering. And it was in no way aligned with continuity of healthcare, right? I think a lot of hospitals like to talk about continuity of care and trauma-informed care. And this was like the opposite of that. And you're right, you know, this was July of 2021. The Dobbs leak hadn't happened. Um, Roe was intact. But because my abortion was after this point of, quote, viability, you know, it wasn't protected by Roe. And, you know, 
Roe, of course, achieved many things in terms of, um, you know, codifying a woman's right uh, to an abortion, a constitutionally protected right to an abortion, but it was a compromise, right? It, it compromised uh, up into a certain point, up into this kind of murky point of fetal viability. So there are, you know, a number of states that have, a majority of states that have some cutoff, right? So, and it's a ban, right? Some cutoff at a point in pregnancy, whether it's 22 weeks or 24 or 26 or, or just the word viability that's interpreted different ways by different healthcare providers. You know, the foundation of Roe was a compromise. And, you know, this was in 1973. A lot has changed since ni- 1973. Yeah. So there are a lot of advocates now who are shining a light on this viability compromise. And there are states that do not have gestational limits or viability cutoffs. We know Washington, DC being one of them. Interestingly, Maryland, where I was able to obtain later abortion care, they do have a viability cutoff, but they have um, rather expansive exceptions um, in terms of the life and health of the patient and also fetal anomalies. So it's interesting when you take a look at the differences between Massachusetts and Maryland state law, they're not radically different laws. Some may say the word lethal fetal anomaly, that word lethal in Massachusetts state law is kind of a a defining factor that may not sufficiently empower physicians to make, you know, informed decisions, but others, others, you know, just disagree with that, um, with that assessment. So there, there are, again, states who are, who are doing it differently and, and who are not reinforcing the, the viability limit or gestational, just gestational limit in law. You know, I'm still thinking about that board of doctors, <laughs> physicians and, and attorneys, you know, who made yeah. the decision in your case. Uh, again, they were very prepared. Do you have a sense of how many other women in your area or in your city have gone through something similar and they were, you know, just gone through something similar. And the second part of that is that who weren't able to get abortion care. I don't know. And that's not data that's readily available. Um, I do know that the reporter who recently told my story, a woman named Shirley Leong in the Boston Globe, you know, did ask that question of Mass General. And I think the response was, you know, few, if any, abortions have been right provided after that 24 week cutoff. I don't know how many folks like me were referred out of state. You know, they answered for themselves, you know, how many, how many few, if any, were provided in the hospital. So I don't know how many people were, were referred out of state. And, and I think more importantly, I don't know how many people were forced to carry to term and birth babies, birth pregnancies that they did not feel good about you know, for whatever reason. And yeah, I think that's really important data. That's, I think, difficult data to get. But I think I often, you know, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm kind of feeling sorry for myself in the, in the saga that my family has been through, you know, I think the only thing worse than terminating a deeply wanted pregnancy at, you know, nearly 34 weeks of gestation would be ha- having been forced to, to give birth and watch my son suffer for however long his life may have been, right? The only thing worse would have been not having that choice, not having access to compassionate abortion care. And I think that's a reality for many people um, right now in many parts of the country, even in blue states. Yeah. You know, I was just, when you were saying it, I was thinking that, you know, if we survive this latest attempt to overturn Roe, which, you know, is slated to happen sometime this month, you know, it's mm-hmm. June now, you know, if that doesn't happen, I I think that 
they will have succeeded in one thing, right? Pushing us towards lowering our standards for abortion as healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll just mm-hmm. be happy to be, be able to get any abortion, <laughs> you know, even yes. if they, you know, <laughs> you know, even if they, you know, put it to, to like 12 weeks or something else, you know, kind of absurdly early, yeah. you know, so even if they don't overturn Roe, they've moved the needle significantly, yes. right? For how yes. we define abortion as healthcare. And yes. that's really unfortunate. It is, it is. And if you kind of go back and, and, subject yourself to listening to the SCOTUS conversations um, around Dobbs, you know, you will very clearly see the line of questioning, why would anyone need to get an abortion after 15 weeks, right? Like, why would anyone ever need to get an abortion after 15 weeks? 15 weeks is quite early, by the way, right? You know, if you look at the data, you know, an overwhelming amount of abortions happen very, very early in pregnancy. Later abortions like mine are exceedingly rare, um, uh, but there are many reasons why somebody would need to access abortion later in pregnancy. When you think about, you know, third trimester abortions, you know, it's generally because of new information, right? New information about the patient's health, the mother's health, new information about the fetus's health, or even new information in terms of a life change or life situation. So, you know, it's not just because of uh a devastating fetal anomaly like mine. Um, but there are many reasons why people may need to make that very difficult decision to pursue later abortion care. Um, and the fact that, you know, you have straight-faced justices asking that question of why would anyone ever need an abortion after 15 weeks? It's just so telling. It's so telling. And I think you're so right in, in highlighting the fact that just this dialogue, engaging in this dialogue about weeks of pregnancy is like (laughs) such a, such a concession, right? It's, you know, and, and, and kind of looking at state laws in terms of, you know, now that quote, everything's going to be turned back to the states, you know, looking at the specifics of state laws, again, many of which have bans, you know, bans with exceptions. But I think as my case does demonstrate in many circumstances, bans with exceptions are really just bans in practice if those exceptions are not being fully explored by providers. Right, right. Even when they seem on the surface to be generous, like the yes. Roe Act, you know, 24 weeks, in your case, you can see that it clearly isn't. And and now they're just kind of absurd, like the one from Oklahoma. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the point of conception, like, how, right. what? <laughs> Fertilization, what? <laughs> how do you have an abortion before that? Yeah, you don't even know. Scientifically, <laughs> you don't even know when that is. Yeah, <laughs> um, preposterous. It's preposterous, and I think it also belies like how little these decision makers know about the science um, and about pregnancy itself. You know, I knew very little before I went through it. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. um, uh, so you know, you know. I mean, obviously, science has never been really important to folks on, uh, you know, on the on the anti-choice side of things. But you're right. I mean, these these recent um, provisions are new in their absurdity. Yeah, you know, I've gone back and forth as to whether they are just kind of ignorant about the science mm-hmm. and, and medicine, or whether they're they are feigning ignorance, right, to you know push this kind of moral position. Right, right, and also you know use it as as a step toward limiting. Plan B, morning after pill, certain types of contraception, right? Like, you know, I think there's kind of a, a longer term play with that feigned ignorance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't want to say moral as in as if, you know, there is a clear moral choice and that moral choice is theirs. I mean, yeah, totally. So what should we all glean from this? You know, what's the lesson other than access to, to abortion and reproductive rights are, you know, far from accessible, right? It's far from basic health care. 
you know, I think, you know, from my perspective, a lot of times people hear my story and it's a very sad story. So they may walk away hearing this. Okay. We need to make sure that state laws have exceptions for people dealing with, um, you know, really, really devastating fetal diagnoses. Um, you know, let's make a carve out, you know, for, um, for cases like mine that are, you know, very sad folks choosing to end a wanted pregnancy. Right. So one of my fears in sharing my story is that, you know, that will be, that will be the outcome, you know, would be like doubling down on exceptions. Um, you know, but from my perspective, what, what states like Massachusetts and other blue states should be doing is, you know, taking a hard look at their current laws and considering new legal frameworks that are not rooted in the concepts of gestational limits or viability standards, which we know are really just time-based bans, right? They're bans at a certain point in pregnancy. So, you know, here in Massachusetts, as we look toward a new governor um, next year, I hope that the state legislature we'll be starting to assess new legal frameworks um, and taking a look at places like Washington, D.C., and there are also six other states that don't have any um, references to time-based bans. So Alaska, Colorado, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, and uh, Vermont. Uh, and, and so they provide interesting models um, for states to look at. You know, they should also be trying to work within existing state law to provide guidance to providers or provide regulations to providers about how they should be interpreting the, the letter of the law. I think a lot of work can be done in that space of, you know, providing guidance to physicians to empower them, so to speak, or untie their hands under kind of the current, um, the current letter of, of the state law. But, you know, I think that what my story also illustrates is that folks in blue states should not be complacent. You know, cases like mine are rare, but as, as I've said before, it's rare until it's you. I think it's a human rights issue in terms of, you know, at a certain point in your pregnancy, you lose your personhood. You know, you are no longer a person, you're an incubator and the state can force you, even a state like Massachusetts, a state can force you um, to carry a pregnancy to term and to risk your life in doing so and caring to term and birthing a baby that your doctors have told you will only know pain and suffering. And that strikes me as particularly barbaric within the, the broader landscape that we're seeing uh, right now. Yeah, it's cruel and barbaric. Yeah. Thinking about your story in the context of all of the stories that we tell. And, you know, you were saying you were kind of worried about sharing it. You know, I think that having real reproductive rights and in a system where we truly treat abortion like health care, mm-hmm. you, sh- you wouldn't have to suppress any story. Yeah. Right. You, you, yeah. We can talk about it openly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. you just, you know, you have an abortion at 12 weeks just because you don't want more children. And it's no one's business, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. Or if, you know, or if you're, you know, you're at 30 weeks, 33 weeks and, and your life is in danger or your mental health is in danger or yes. the child's life is, you know, it, it does not matter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't matter. You know, oftentimes, um, you know, people are like uncomfortable talking about later abortion. Like that's the word they use. It's uncomfortable, right? Um the polling isn't quote as clear cut. It's really rare. It makes people uncomfortable to think about it, to talk about it. But you know what else is uncomfortable? You know, being told by your doctors, by your state, that once your fetus crosses this murky threshold of viability, you're no longer a person, you're an incubator, you know, good luck to you. And your baby's quality of life doesn't matter. Your life doesn't matter. You know, 
I think the, the punchline here, what, what we're all learning very quickly, unfortunately, um, is that abortion is not considered healthcare in, in many parts of our country, in the majority of our country, but abortion is healthcare in any trimester and really for any reason. Um, so I think you're right. You know, hopefully there'll be a day when, um, when it doesn't matter and, and when, when folks don't need to feel uncomfortable about sharing their stories um, or, or, or they can be very open about it. Right. And that's why I keep repeating it over and over again. Abortion is healthcare because, you know, they're going to have to become comfortable with it because, you know, the, the fight is on. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. And, anyway, well, Kate, Deneen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for sharing your story. And yeah, thank you for everything. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for shining a light on gaps in access, uh, you know, that even exist in blue states like Massachusetts. 